0: Randy's out of town this week, uh, which is why I'm up here. He's, he's relaxing down at the beach, so let's just be praying for him and his family as they're, they're finding refreshment there. It's, it's good to pull away and just rest together as a family. So pray that he will find refreshment uh, in the Word of God and just that rest, uh, that resting time. Um, but today, as I get the privilege of getting to hear and open up God's Word and, and talk about it, I get to talk about probably two of the most shocking things in Jesus' ministry. One shocking thing that he did and one shocking thing that he said. When he goes in and clears the temple and drives out the money changers and gives that radical promise that I read earlier to his disciples. We get to talk about what, what, he was, what, what that meant and what, what he meant when he said that to his disciples. But before we get there, we need to walk through a little bit of the history of the people of Israel. Because the people of Israel, they had the unique privilege of being God's chosen people through whom he would reveal his his glory and his nature to the world. If you've been reading along with us in our church reading plan, you know we've been in Genesis. And if you remember back in Genesis 12, God spoke to Abraham, and he chose Abram from his his, uh, family and said, and he blessed him with three promises. He promised him a son who would turn into a mighty nation. And he promised that nation would have a land that they would dwell in. And that those people would bring blessing to all the peoples of the earth. That through them, all the families would be blessed. From the very beginning, God had set apart Abram to be his chosen people. So that the, the nations of the world might be blessed through, them, through him. Later on in Israel's history, David comes about. Israel's beloved king. He understood this mission very well. In fact, I believe that he was—he was, as he was shepherding the sheep as a, as a boy, he was just reflecting back on the promises and the law of God and just worshiping him out there in the field as he was shepherding the sheep. So when he goes to his brothers who were at war to bring them some food, and he sees Goliath out there in the field mocking Israel, mocking his God, he becomes a little ticked off. gets a little angry. Because in his mind, no one is going to come into his land and mock his God. Especially this pagan fool who's out there in the middle in this army who thinks that he's better than everybody. No one's going to do that about his God. So he says this to him. After he gathers five smooth stones from the creek, he goes up to the Philistine and he says, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. A little bit more intense than the VeggieTales version, isn't it? But listen to what he says, why? He says, I'm going to do all this, the Lord's going to do this, so that all of the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with a sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. Who knew that David and Goliath was a story about missions? About God's glory being revealed to the nations? Because if you look at where Israel was set up, that little red line that goes through it is the, is the major highway of that day. If anything was going to Egypt or from Egypt to the rest of the world, which things did because Egypt was, was a large source of trade in that time, They went through Israel. God had strategically placed his chosen people in the center of the ancient world so that people were regularly and constantly coming in contact with his people so that they might reflect his nature and his glory to them and that they may come to know the living God that they serve. And I imagine that as people were traveling through Israel, they'd say, hey, tell me a story about your people. Let me tell you about our King David when he was a boy. And how God, our God, who was a living God, delivered him from the hand of the giant Goliath. And people got to hear about the faithfulness and the victorious of, of God. He passed that on to his son Solomon, at least in part. Because when Solomon built his glorious temple and he dedicated in 1 Kings 8, he prayed this. He says, Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people comes from a far country for your namesake, For they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. And when he comes and prays towards this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. The temple was meant to be a place where not only the people of Israel worshipped God, but all the peoples of the Earth would come and worship God. and He was even built that way, which we'll look at in a little bit. But the people of Israel, they departed from their purpose. They were supposed to be image-bearers of, of God, worshippers of the living God. But they betrayed God for idols. And they began to set up idols in the temple, led by kings like Jeroboam and others after him, to set up idols. In the temple, and they went to go after them. And Jeremiah indicts the people of Judah. After the Israel, the northern kingdom has already been in the exile. Jeremiah says this about the other two tribes that were left. He says, "For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight," declares the Lord. "They have set their idols or their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it." So, after some time, God sends his people into exile to Babylon so that he might purify them. And during that time, Solomon's temple is destroyed. But later, God brings his people back, and they reconstruct the temple so that they can worship God again. It's not the same glorious temple that Solomon built, but it's a temple nonetheless. And then in about 20 B.C., Herod builds this temple. He was called Herod the Great because he did great building projects, but he was also very wicked. He was the one who sought after to kill Jesus when he was born. So he built this temple temple and as you can see that outer court that where everything is kind of in that open patio area that's supposed to be the court for the gentiles that's where the gentiles would come and worship god in the temple just on the inside of it you see that it's the court for the women where the women would come where jewish women would come and worship god and the next level in is the court for men and then the building inside was where the priests could go And then inside the building, there was a smaller room called the Holy of Holies. And that's where the chief priest would go once a year. But that outer court was where the nations could come and worship. It doesn't matter where you're from. If you're coming through and you want to worship the living God, you could go in to that temple and have that space for your worship. It was meant to be a place of prayer and of worship where they could call out to God in prayer. But by the time Jesus is, is walking in, which is, we're going to get to our text in just a second, the people of God, just like they did in the Old Testament, they had again set up idols in their temple. Now, it wasn't the golden calves or the, or the bells or the statues. They didn't have anything visible in there. But it was an invisible idol of money and religious tradition. And that became who they worshipped. Because John MacArthur, he notes in his commentary, it says, according to the Levitical law, that any animal approved by the priest could be offered in the, in the temple... But the chief priests, they made certain that animals not bought in one of their franchises would be judged unacceptable, giving their vendors the de facto right to provide all the animals. So in the court of the Gentiles, where there's supposed to be worship happening, these vendors would come in and they would set up booths where they would sell sacrificial animals. And they would have currency exchange booths as well there, because the sacrificial animals that were bought inside the temple were approved, and the ones that were outside the temple that were a little bit cheaper, a lot of it cheaper, were not approved. So the Pharisees and the, and the priests and the scribes, they, were having the, they had this system set up where they could, they could exploit God's law so that they could, they could gain personal profit because they upcharged the animals. And then the currency exchangers, they had to use Jewish money, they would, they would give a, um, an unfair rate of exchange. I think it was a 6% rate of exchange upcharge. And then... If they didn't have the exact amount of change, they had to charge an extra 6%. So it ended up being a 12% rate of exchange. So they were using their power and the law and the traditions that they had set up to extort people for money. And Leon Morris, in his commentary, just puts it pretty bluntly. He says that they put profit over worship. That's the environment that Jesus walks into when he walks into the temple, as we're about to read in our text. People are extorting people for money. Because they love money more than they love God. And they're adding burdensome traditions onto people who are already traveling a long way to worship God in the temple. And that's where Jesus walks in. As we read in verse 12, it says, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, But you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. The irony of the situation is is that the people of God, the so-called chosen people of God, were so caught up in their idolatry and their hypocrisy that they had God himself in the flesh standing in the temple that they had built to worship him. And they heard praise come from people's lips to God in the temple. And they were so spiritually blind and hard-hearted that they did not even recognize it. Because that's what idolatry does. It was so cool. We were talking, to, so those who've been going through the medical curriculum, idolatry was, a, was on the forefront of the lesson today and it didn't plan it that way. Uh, and a lot of the sermon is going to be talking about that as well. But the ironic thing about idolatry is that the people who worship idols become as spiritually blind and hard-hearted as the lifeless idols they worship. So that when the living God is standing in their presence, they can't even recognize him. In fact, when people began to worship him in the way that he was meant to be worshipped, they become indignant. The people of God had rejected their God for idols. And that idolatry was not without consequence. Because as we continue reading in the text, it says, In the morning as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing the fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it, not a single fig, but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. And what happens in this text is, is, is an interesting thing that happens. I can tell you what's not happening. Jesus isn't upset that he is missing his mid-morning snack. Maybe someone in life group forgot to bring breakfast, and you understand, kind of understand that feeling. Um, but that's not what Jesus is doing here. He's doing an, a visible object lesson, like a parable, for his disciples. Because oftentimes in, in the um, Old Testament, Israel was refer, referred to as a fig tree, as a symbol. Look at, listen to Jeremiah. Just, we read from Jeremiah 7. Look at what he goes on to say in Jeremiah 8. He says, Were they ashamed when they committed this abomination, the setting up the idols in the temple? He says, No, they were not at all ashamed. He says, they didn't even know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. William Barclay says this in his commentary. He says, the tree had leaves, and the leaves were supposed to be a sign for figs, but the tree had no figs. Its claim was false, therefore it was condemned. The Jewish nation professed faith in God, but in practice they were unable to recognize God himself. And they stood condemned. Jesus cursing the fig tree is meant to be an object lesson for his disciples, is that the Israelites, they had failed their purpose, and now they were entering into judgment. They would be judged because of it. They had gone after idols. They weren't reflecting the nature of God, his love, his justice, and his mercy. But they were reflecting the burdensome traditions that they had set up as God. They were reflecting the opposite of God's nature. And they were worshiping idols instead of their creator. And Jesus had no tolerance for such idolatry, And such hypocrisy. And the point for us today is this: we must understand is that false worship is revealed by fruitless lives that end in judgment. False worship is revealed by fruitless lives that end in judgment. Douglas O'Donnell says this very simply about the passage. He says, "If there's anything that we can learn from this passage is that the green leaves of your religious practices cannot cover a fruitless life." The green leaves of your religious practices cannot cover a fruitless life. If you're hoping that your involvement in church or a baptism or a prayer that you prayed or anything that you do on this earth can cover a life given to the things of this world, learn from the fig tree. Only judgment awaits. Because the flip side of that is that genuine worship is revealed by fruitless life It was revealed by fruitful lives that end in life. There's no fruit, there's no worship. There's no fruit, there's judgment. Those who worship God bear fruit for God. But Jesus didn't just want to pronounce judgment on the house of Israel. He didn't want to just give this as a warning. But he really wanted to strengthen and encourage his disciples. Because he knew that in just a few days he was going to die... And he was going to resurrect. And just a few days after that, he was going to ascend to be with the Father, leaving behind a mission for his disciples to accomplish. So he gives these next next two verses where we're going to focus in on, on, on the rest of this, for the rest of the sermon. It says, When the disciples saw, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith, and do not doubt. You will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, "Be taken up and thrown into the sea," it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. The main message that Jesus has for you today, if you've repented and believed in the gospel, is this: He wants us to understand that when we worship the living God and depend on Him through faithful prayer, we bear fruit in this world. And we move the mountains God wants moved. When we worship the living God and depend on him through faithful prayer, we bear fruit in this world and move the mountains God wants moved. That first point is what I want to focus in for just a moment is that Jesus wants us as his followers to worship the living God. Even as believers, as we're going and engaging in this mission, there's the temptation that we will fall back into idolatry. And I want us to reframe what we think about idolatry. I, I think we talked; some of the life groups were talking about. They brought up some great points about idolatry, and that we could fill the board with the idols that we that we can struggle with today. I want us to understand: as idolatry is not really just a issue that we deal with, but it is the issue from which all other sin flows. In fact, the sins that we commit and we recognize are really just symptoms of an idol that we have set up and began to give our allegiance to because anything can become an idol. And idolatry is not just, like I said, not worshiping just a golden cow statue, but idolatry occurs whenever we cling to something or someone other than God for security or significance. Or it's also whenever we cling or give someone or something the loyalty that only God deserves. Our idols could be anything, good and bad, money, work, Reputation, approval, family, kids, religious tradition, friends, education, sex, food, football, travel sports, comfort, significance, control. And the list could go on and on. And the results of our idol worship is fruitlessness because we we abide in something other than the living vine who is God himself. So we bear No fruit when we go after idols. I want to talk about one in particular that's coming up. Next week, college football starts. I'm excited about it. I'm going to watch the games. It's a great game. Let me tell you, college football, Alabama, Auburn, LSU, if you go that way, makes a horrible God. How do you know if it's become a God? If It draws you away from the worship of God and the fellowship with his people. I tell you, if you give yourself over to that, even if you think it's just for a season, let me tell you, idols are not content with just taking just a season of your life. But they'll continue to fight for the control of it all. And you'll find yourself being as fruitless and lifeless as the very football that you're worshiping. Alabama and Auburn football is great. And I'm looking forward to watching the games. But it is a crappy God. You can say the same thing about anything. Theater, dance, education, grades. So many, so many people I see, peers of mine who are in school and, and younger, they're, they're putting their hope and their security in the grades that they get. You know what happens when you do that? It becomes an idol. And you find yourself worked up with anxiety and no peace and no rest because you've set education as the vehicle of your salvation rather than Christ. It could be work, it could be family, it could be your kids, whatever it is. I'm telling you, if you pursue after idols, if you make them an idol and you get it out of whack with how you're, the order of things are supposed to be, even if it's a good thing, you will see fruitlessness. And you will see them begin to malfunction and conflict and anxiety arise. So if your problem if your problem. If you're having problems seeing fruit in your life, and what I mean by that is the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, or you're having problems seeing people come into faith, because the fruit of a believer is another believer. we have been called to make disciples and bear fruit in this world by leading people to come to know Jesus as our Savior and Lord. If we're seeing very little of that fruit coming about in our lives, I want to I get you to look at this in a, a specific way. Because the problem is not an effort problem not a discipline problem. It most likely is a worship problem. An idol has crept in. Let me tell you, this has been one of the most convicting passages that I've had to study in a long time. And I've just wrestled with it. The idols that have crept in and this next part. Because when we worship the living God, we naturally engage in the mission of God. If you are worshiping God, you are engaging in his mission by making disciples. If you're not seeking to make disciples in this world, then you're not worshiping God. But as we do that, Jesus also wants his church to do this. He wants us to depend on God through faithful prayer as you engage in his mission. We're called to depend on God through faithful prayer as you engage in his mission. Now I'm about to get nerdy on you for a little bit. Y'all good with that? J.R. Tolkien wrote, a, wrote a, a fantasy epic in the early, I think, 20s it was, or I can't remember. But it was called The Lord of the Rings. They've made them in the movies. Uh, they're incredible books, incredible movies. They're great. And just to give a little bit of a background in it, there was an, there's an enemy who raises, rises up in the land, and he's created a ring that gives him power over all of the, all of the land. Well, he gets kind of defeated for a little bit, and the ring goes from different owner to owner. And it ends up falling into the hands of a man named Frodo. Well, Frodo ends up linking up with these eight other individuals led by one man named Gandalf. And they begin on this quest, this mission that is of great urgency to destroy the ring in the land that it was created. So that the people of the earth may experience salvation from the tyranny of the enemy. But along the way, they, come, they approach this mountain range, the Misty Mountains. And they attempt to go over the mountain and there, as, it, as it has stopped them in the path of their mission. They attempt to go over the mountain through the pass, but they're stopped by a supernatural storm. So they reluctantly go underneath the mountain into the, what do they call the mines of Moria. And in that, they battle goblins, orcs, and as you can see on the screen, this is the, the, what they call the fearsome Balrog. Gandalf, their leader, faces off this monster down in the, in the pit on this bridge, and he says, you shall not pass, and he does his sword thing down, and, and they end up battling out, and Gandalf ends up winning, but he also ends up giving his life as a result. Spoiler alert. Um, but um, they end up leaving the, the, the mines, the company does, the eight of them. They've lost their leader. Frodo still has the ring, but they end up splitting up right after that but due to a, um, a couple other issues that happened. And Frodo and Sam end up going by themselves into the dangerous land that they're, where they needed to destroy this ring. Now that's just a fantasy mission. And the, and the point of this is this. They had a mission that was urgent. So urgent that people's lives depended on it. And a mountain got in the way. Jesus knew in just a few days when he sent his disciples on mission that there would be many mountains that get in the way of his mission. To go into the world and make disciples of all nations. Now Matthew, as I've said before, Matthew is moving towards the Great Commission. Everything in Matthew is moving to the disciples to the believers to the Great Commission, which is to go into all the nations, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I command, commanded of you, And behold, I will be with you always. That is where Matthew is heading. And Jesus knows that, and he is preparing his disciples, and he is empowering them with this promise. He says, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. I think if that, that group that was on that mission, if they could just they could pray as they were going on this, on this mission that this mountain would be taken up and thrown away and they could just walk right through. But symbolically, Jesus is saying as we go out on missions, on, on his mission, and as mountains come in our way to obstruct his mission, that we can pray to him and he would respond to us. Now this passage has been taken out of context more times than I would like to to count. So, we may even, as we're reading it, we may just kind of feel uneasy at reading the radical nature of this promise. Let me tell you two things that this promise is not. Jesus is not saying, Hey, I'm your magic genie, and if you believe, you will receive. That is not what Jesus is saying. Because what did Jesus just do? He judged the house of Israel for their idolatry. He will not answer prayers that contribute to your idolatry. If you're praying for things that will only contribute, to your love for something other than God, he will not answer that prayer. He will not give you a yes to a prayer that will only lead you further away from him. That doesn't make sense. But what it also doesn't mean is that, let's say, for example, you lost a loved one and you were praying in faith that that wouldn't happen, praying for healing. It doesn't mean that your prayers weren't done in faith. Because it could have been God's will that he was to pass away at that time. Because the Bible says that the man has appointed one time to die and then face judgment. Solomon said that there's a time to live and there's a time to die. We don't know what God's will is. So you can't can't say, hey, you just didn't have faith. That could be the issue and only you could know that. But that's not what Jesus is saying either. Because John Bloom says that faith is not divine currency that we pay God in order to receive whatever we ask in prayer. But faith is relational trust, a relational response of trust or dependence in what God promises. And he goes on to say this defining whatever it is. He says, whatever is anything according to God's will. But this is no divine bait and switch. This is not a radically sounding promise that isn't actually radical. The fig tree really withered. And Jesus really means for us to move mountains. But we are meant to move the mountains that God wants moved. We are meant to move the mountains that God wants moved. And I want us to understand is that prayer is intricately attached to our mission. By prayer, we ask God in dependence upon Him to move the mountains in our lives that are in the way of mission. Prayer is the way that we move the mission forward. It is prayer that moves it forward. Not our efforts, but prayer. Because we can build a better building. We can have better programs. We can send more people on trips. But if we are not persistently and regularly depending upon God in prayer, in faith, to move the mountains of unbelief in people's hearts, their hardened hearts, and our own fear and inability, and potentially even our just busy schedules. If we're not asking him in prayer, depending on him regularly, we will be unsuccessful in reaching people with the gospel. Prayer moves the mission forward. Listen to how John Piper describes prayer in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. He says prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. So it is not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. Go on to the next slide. It says, God has given prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie so that we can call headquarters for everything we need as the kingdom of Christ advances in the world. Prayer gives us the significance of frontline forces and gives God the glory of limitless provider. That's what prayer is. We're engaged in the battle and we have the wartime walkie-talkie with headquarters. And we're calling in, hey, there's this mountain that needs to be moved. It's this unbelief that just, has penetrated this culture for so long. Lord, we need you to move this mountain. We cannot do it. He does. Because God has promised that we will be successful in our mission. Matthew 24 talks about how the gospel will go into all of the earth and then the end will come. As we read the revelations, what did you notice about the people that were there? People of every tribe, tongue, and nation. The gospel will go to all nations. Jesus will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We know that we will be successful, and we know that we will be successful because God is with us, and he is going to move the mountains that are obstructing the mission of his church. We engage him, and we engage that through prayer. That's why it's so important as we're doing these things, as we're teaching life group, as we're investing in our, our, our students, as we're going out in evangelism, as we're sharing pe- faith with people at open hands or at way of the cross, we're or, or going on mission trips, we must be deeply engaging in prayer because prayer is what moves the mission forward, not you. And that is what Jesus is saying, I think, in this passage because he knows that there will be mountains and that they will try to get in the way of his mission. And these mountains will be both internal and external. And he's assuring us, as he does over and over and over again in the book of Matthew, that he is with us. And he wants us to understand that when we worship the living God and depend upon him in faithful prayer, we bear fruit in this world and we move the mountains God wants moved. To do that, we must worship the living God consistently putting the death to idols in our lives, then we must depend upon him in faithful prayer.